You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I talk with Denise James. Denise is an associate professor of philosophy and director of women's and gender studies program at the University of Dayton. She teaches courses in contemporary social and political philosophy and is concerned with using the resources of pragmatism to help frame and attempt to resolve urban issues. She has published on the intersections of classical American pragmatism and black feminist philosophy. In this episode, we talk Lorraine Hansberry, political illusions, the problem and cause of integration, Zion cities, and so much more. Hello, Denise, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on. Denise, how did you get interested in philosophy? <laughs> so I went to college and I knew I was going to be a lawyer. Okay. And I read in a book somewhere, you know, those you know, how to be a lawyer guide things that, you know, all of those people put out that said, if you take philosophy classes, you'll do better in your LSAT. Yes. So I took a philosophy class and my professor converted me to philosophy. He told me I didn't want to really be a lawyer, that I wanted to sit with the books and the ideas and then I should be a philosopher. I didn't believe him, but I, I decided to change my major. I was a French major when I started college and I ended up in grad school. Okay. So, so it seemed that if you were going towards law, that perhaps your philosophical research would be focused on the philosophy of law. So how did it end up veering into what you're currently doing? Uh, long road. So by the end of my college career, I realized that I was more interested in politics than the law, but I didn't want to be a politician, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in things like, you know, justice and social arrangements and class stratification, that sort of stuff. And so when I went to um, grad school, the idea was to write a sort of genealogy of certain terms. I was a Foucauldian when I started. I went to a continental and history program, and I was just interested in the political ideas. Now, where I ended up, that's that's a sort of long, winding road, but decided about halfway through graduate school that I was a pragmatist, got really interested in John Dewey. So... The law was a one part of a larger puzzle for me. It wasn't the it wasn't the only thing I was interested in. But you know, when I was young and my sort of naive idea of what I could do, you know, my people didn't go to college, so I had two options. I went to college. I had to be a lawyer or a doctor. Mm-hmm. Not the type of doctor I became. So I only knew that people who were sort of interested in questions of justice were lawyers. I didn't know that you could study stuff other than the law. Like that. That's all I knew. And so when I, you know started to to really dig into the types of questions I was interested in, politics and political theory were more in line with my interests. Okay. So most people, you mentioned the continental tradition. I'm coming out of the analytic tradition. And a lot of people may ask, what does she mean by pragmatism? So briefly kind of explain that for us. And why did that grab your attention? Yeah, so I wasn't supposed to be a pragmatist, right? Pragmatism isn't a um, continental tradition. And by continental, people mean a lot of things. They usually mean something like um, philosophy out of Europe at a certain time, interest in a, a certain mode of thinking and questioning. So the pragmatist um, 
the, at least the classical pragmatists, are an American philosophy tradition. And so they were people at the you know end of the 18th um, century into the early, uh, I'm sorry, not the 18th century, 19th century into the 20th, who started to ask questions like, um, what can we do uh, with all of this new science, right? So um, science was uh, coming up with all of these ideas about who people were, right? So brain science was new. There was all sorts of new biological findings, but also science around industry and physics. And there were philosophers, but they were interested in questions that were grounded in practical matters. How can we use all of this new intelligence uh, to better arrange our social world? And so I got really interested in that on a whim, right? I went to, where I went to grad school at the time, uh, there was only one guy doing pragmatism and he sort of made an offhand remark in class one day, right? Like we, it wasn't even a class on pragmatism. It was a class on the Frankfurt School and Horkheimer and Adorno. And he, he made this sort of random aside, like, you know, if you're interested in uh, how people around this time were thinking about uh, philosophy and science in the U.S., you know, pragmatism is a really good thing. And so, you know, it was one of those things, it's someone makes an offhand remark and then you get really into it. Mm -hmm. And it was the closest I could get to what I wanted in philosophy. So, you know, I went to a program at a time where I wasn't reading, you know, anyone who wasn't white and from a certain professional tradition of philosophy in my education. Although I had had that sort of education before I got there, I went to Spelman College, and so I had a lot of ideas about sort of black people as thinkers, but that wasn't a part of my formal philosophy education at the time that I, this, this professor made this aside. And so pr the pragmatists were almost what I wanted. People who were thinking about the ideas, who really thought that sort of the careful analysis of language and concepts was important, but who were also really practically grounded, who were, who were thinking about um, how we can best order um, a society, especially a society with, with deep social injustices. But the pragmatists, in some ways, didn't quite fulfill what I wanted, but they were closer to it than when I was studying at the time. Okay. So, of course, you are a philosopher, but you have been quite interested in a particular playwright for the last six years. So tell me, how did you get interested in Lorraine Hansberry, who I love, and what do you find philosophically interesting and insightful about her and her work? I can admit that, you know, I didn't start out, you know, thinking, you know what, I'm going to pick up Lorraine Hansberry and do some philosophy with her. <laughs> like, that is that is not how this works. Um, I had been at my current job for, this was, it was like my second year. And I have a colleague, well, I had a colleague, he's since passed on, who was in the law school. And he was putting together a panel for Black History Month on A Raisin in the Sun. They were going to watch, screen the, the play and watch part of uh, a film. And it was a big deal at the time. I think this was when, you know, uh, Puffy was reprising the role. So, you know, it was a thing. So he, he contacted me, he said, be on this panel and talk about uh, Lorraine Hansberry's play and her deep ethical ideas and all of this radicalism. And I was like, uh, no, <laughs> I don't want to be on a panel about Lorraine Hansberry. One, I had read the play and some other things, but, you know, as like a college kid, I, I didn't have any real sense of her as a thinker. And I, and I told him that I didn't necessarily want to do it. And he was like, oh, you don't have a choice. I've asked. And, you know, I work at an institution 
where at the time there were fewer than 20 tenure line black faculty. Now that has actually shrunk since then, but there were, there were just so few of us. And he was like, my students need to see you. So come be on this panel about Lorraine Hansberry. He said, he didn't give me, he didn't really give me a choice and it was persuasive. So, you know, I did what we do when we get asked to be on panels that we're not expert about. I spent the three weeks in between when he asked and when the panel was, you know, trying to, to figure out some ideas. And what I found out was that I had done to Lorraine Hansberry what so many people had done to Lorraine Hansberry. I had decided that she was one play and that was it. Yeah. Right. And that that play, I had a script about that play. Like I knew what the play was about, what I thought the play was about and interpretations. But there was so much more um, to to her corpus, even though she lived a relatively short life. And I, and I just got a fire in me about thinking about her as a thinker. Mm-hmm. And so what I discovered was uh, that one of the things that was sort of really philosophically significant about Lorraine Hansberry, and at least the, for me as someone who wants to be a practical philosopher, right? A philosopher who writes for philosophers, who thinks about professional philosophy things, but also who does that in community with other folks, was that she was always a an artist, a writer who was practicing her art and writing in a community of folks who were interested in issues of justice. In some ways, it's you know role modeling. I didn't know I didn't know that that's the way she was operating. I only knew about this play, right? And so then suddenly here was a woman who I think I just felt you know this kinship with about her really sort of complex ideas, but also her desire to be a part of practical solutions. And so set on the panel, it went how those things go. <laughs> but after that, you know she she was a part of. I was always trying to figure out how I could give her some due, at least in the work that I was doing at the time. So let's talk about Hansberry and black political illusions, right? So you know that Hansberry notes, quote, that there's a desperate need in our time for the Negro writer to assume a partisanship and namely the war against the illusions of one's time and culture, right? You also know that there are four illusions that she describes. But before we talk about these four illusions, why why are they called illusions for you in the first place, as opposed to myths or, or falsehoods? So, and I thought about this for a long time when I, when I really uh, started to trace back through her work and, and think about the, you know, she was always using this term illusion. Sometimes the word delusion, but more often illusion. And I realized his very was a writer and so she was really careful about her words and the choice in word I think signals what she thinks the illusion is doing see an illusion is an oversimplification right you see uh, say the illusionist right the magician perform the trick and what you see is the trick now if you're if you're attentive and if you're careful you know what to watch for you see that there are other things happening right mm-hmm. that the coin doesn't really disappear that the building actually didn't disappear that he's not levitating and it's this idea that she has that things are um, there, but there's a way that we cover over them with illusions. There's, there's these distortions of what is happening. And it's not, I think, quite like myth or or other sort of falsehood because the illusion itself has its form. It takes on its life, right? So if it was just a, something false, right? I say, right, where I am right now, it's 
thundering and raining and it's really dreary out. And if I say, you know, it's sunny outside and you look out the window, you know, I'm wrong, right? There, there was something wrong about my interpretation. The illusion is something else, right? It looks out the window. You look out the window and the illusion says it's raining and storming. And they tell you things like, it is the best sort of day. Now, the interpretation of, you know, the fact of the matter that it's raining and storming uh, is what's at dispute for her, right? That the illusion is covering over not a reality, sort of independent of the illusion, but, but it's making something uh, seem in a way that either oversimplifies or distorts multiple interpretations. In some ways, I'm saying that she's saying it's a, it's a problem of perception, right? When, when she's thinking about these political illusions, uh, there are ways that our, our perceptions of things are uh, crafted, distorted in certain ways. I think this is perhaps different than myth-making, right? I think when people are engaged in uh, sort of myths, at least uh, the way I understand them from, from Hansberry, there's a, a sort of story that is built, created, and told, and there are you know, these sort of popular tropes and ideas that get thrown in, and so myth-making may support the illusion, but you don't have to be invested in the whole myth to, to, to be subject to some of the illusions, I think. Okay. So you say that the, the first two of the four illusions is about how the writers should approach their craft, and the latter two are, are straightforwardly political. So let's, let's first address those referring to the writer, and then we move on to the others. So, so the first illusion for Hansberry is, quote, art is not and should not be social, end quote. But on your reading of Hansberry, art is always social. So how is the former statement an illusion? So Hansberry is writing, was writing at a time where one of the ways that the sort of mainstream art world, but also the mainstream world of critics for popular entertainment, disparaged what black artists were, were doing at the time was by calling it political art or protest art, right? And to do so was to say, this is not really art. Right, that if, if your art has a message, uh, a sort of political voice, or it comes from some sort of values, then you're not actually producing what uh, some folks thought of as art. Now, Hansberry looked around, she said, you know what? All of these great playwrights, all these great novelists, the great American novel, right? She said, all of these people have deeply embedded social and political values in their art. We only normalize and say that it's not social and political because they're part of the dominant group. Yeah. And so, she really wanted to point out that even when the artist claims, right, that this is not, you know, on behalf of some political ideology, that the artist comes to the work with their views, their social values, with all sorts of deeply held and sometimes conscious, sometimes not so conscious beliefs. And so she was just really, I think, trying to fight against the tide that said, you know what, you can do art for art's sake and it doesn't matter how it appears in the social world. It doesn't matter what commentary you're making about society. She was very keenly aware of how art, you know, the use of art, the name of art in high and low was used to, to continue to sort of segregate and disparage uh, artists who were not from the mainstream. But she was also clear about pointing out the fact that all of these uh, really sort of dominant canonical figures had social and political values that just had been assumed not to be value-laden art. So the second illusion as it relates to the writer is that People exist independent of the world around them. How did Hansberry see this illusion play out in art, and how do you see it play out in modern-day art? So she's writing at the time where 
questions of sort of existential anxiety. Who am I? What am I in the world? It was a it was a time where the beatniks had come onto the scene and they were writing these deeply psychological inner life of man and she used the term man and I think she uses it on purpose, right? She's pointing out that this is a very gendered idea of art and it's all about, you know, the lone individual who is having, you know, these deep sort of fits of conscience and, and this is what was considered art at the time. And there was this desire for that art to not res- to somehow be art for art's sake, just like in the, the first illusion, and removed from the social world, right? And she was really against that. She thought that people were embedded in their social world, that we can't sort of shake off society and somehow be a freestanding individual. This is not to say that she didn't have interesting ideas about individuality and agency, but she was just really keenly aware that this idea that the art can produce, that the artist produces a product outside of society, it can, can be problematic. The way I think about this in contemporary art, I think there are lots of different ways that this plays out. The, the most sort of easily accessible to us is when, say, an artist makes some product, right, some work, whether it's a song or it's an exhibition of visual art, and uh, people say it's offensive. And the, often what the first lots of people artists say is, oh, but it's on my art. It's a thing that I was thinking. It's, it's, it's my thing. It doesn't have a political form. I should be able to do you know, whatever I like. Your offense is not a big deal for the sake of my art. And so whether we, whatever we think about those sorts of claims, Hansberry was suspicious. She thought that people would interpret her art in lots of different ways. She had some frustrations about how people uh, interpreted her art. But she thought of art as a social product, right? She was an individual who created art, and that, that art went into society, and society would have their judgments about it. And that part of what the artist has to realize is that they're a part of a larger social world. And artists can make things worse. I think she thought that she was trying to make art to, to, to bring certain thing, issues to light, and in some ways to make some things better. But she also thought, and this is, I think, something that we don't talk much about, at least in my circles people don't talk enough about, is that art can make things worse. You can use art in ways to hurt, damage, to harm people, and call it art. It's, it's entertainment. It's art for art's sake. And what do we do in those circumstances? And so she was really keenly aware of that. Now, straight to the the political illusions. The third illusion is that everyone in the country was middle class with middle class problems. And it's interesting because I've noticed middle class language in political rhetoric for the last few years that have just rubbed me the wrong way, right? So when mm-hmm. Obama speaks and even during the uh, debate, we want a tax breaks for the middle class. And I'm always wondering, so what about the poor, right? So mm-hmm. I, I wonder for you, give us some more examples of this particular illusion. Hansberry is writing at a time when they're growing, there's growing mobilization of uh, poor black folks in particular, but she's a socialist, so she's also interested in mobilization against, so labor mobilizing against capitalism, right? And she's writing at a time where one of the sort of refrains against that mobilizing is that the poor are somehow um, lazy and the reason why, you know, they don't have the sorts of things that they need, the social conditions that they need is because they don't work enough. Or they're concerned about silly things when they should be concerned about how they work and what sort of jobs they have. And in her time, part of the middle class values was a buy-in to a system, capitalism for her, that said your material conditions, your possessions 
of things were where you sought your value. So the, the goal was uh, to get the best sort of single family home, uh, to have a job that paid you a paycheck uh, that was a steady paycheck, not sort of criticizing what those values could also mean and lead to, which was class stratification, the estrangement of the worker from the work. Um, she was keenly aware that middle class values actually didn't solve the problem of the poor, the people who were disenfranchised, right? Um, having a, a decent job in a factory and, uh, and, and a single family home at the time, especially for black folks, right, didn't mean that you were enfranchised. Yeah. And so she was she was really keenly aware that with the middle class taking up this this idea of middle class values and and how you were supposed to speak and present yourself in public, all these these sorts of these sorts of ideas, they were actually leaving out and behind one big ideolo- ideological problems, right, that she was having at the time, uh, no matter what your class was, but also issues that the poor faced. And she thought that those sorts of middle class problems were really doing some harm when it came to thinking about um, how we could better arrange our society. And you also think that these middle class values are not only problematic domestically, but also globally. How so? So for Hansberry, she was thinking and she was really a student of and trying to process the growing independence movements in Africa. And she was a part of a sort of black intelligentsia uh, in New York at a time where this was a thing to think about. You know, what would increasing nationalism in Africa, especially West Africa, mean for blacks in the diaspora? How would that help or uh, be like or, or different from freedom struggles in the U.S.? And she was, I think, thinking about how people were criticizing the struggles for freedom abroad using the types of middle-class values that she thought were problematic in the U.S., right? If, if the goal was something like um, freedom from poverty and freedom for self-expression and increased awareness that the world is not centered around what she calls white supremacy, uh, what we now call white supremacy, she, she would say something like white dominance, she was like, if, if those are what we're concerned about, then criticizing freedom movements because they're not generating factory jobs or they're not generating the sorts of governments and ideas that we think of as dominant um, was problematic. So, so how do you wage war against this particular illusion? Do you promote the values of the poor? Is there, or is there another effective way to wage war against it? You know, for Hansberry, and this is one of the things I've really been thinking about a lot lately, the language of war and partisan are really big for her. She's like, you know what, you choose a side. You choose mm-hmm. a side, the side that you think is 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 the right side. And the right side, you know, we can discuss how you come to those those ideas. She says, you choose a side, and then you gotta figure out what sort of moves you can make. And she wasn't prescriptive in the sense that she didn't write out the way that we help the disenfranchised and the black poor is this. Right? That that wasn't quite what she was she was about. Her I think her project was different. But I think one of the ways that you wage the war is that you recognize, right, that uh, to, to use a very contemporary uh, way that people talk about it, you know, your your first world problems, right? I'm crying my tears about things that are really problematic. Like earlier uh, this morning, um, I wanted to wear a particular shoe. Like I, I was real specific about which shoe I was going to wear. It's funny, I wear black all the time, so all my <laughs> shoes are black too. But I wanted to wear this particular shoe. 
you know, I searched my house high and low for this shoe. As I passed by five other pairs of shoes, that would have been just fine. And I mean, I was at the point of madness. Like, oh, I'm so mad I can't find my shoe. And I was like, today is going to be a horrible day. It's raining and I can't find my shoe. Now, it was a big deal for me at six o'clock this morning when I was getting dressed. But in the scheme of things, I'm a person with multiple pairs of shoes going to a very cushy job in a vehicle that works with people around me that support me. And and I'm keen to, to, to think about that sometimes, that the things that sometimes occupy my understanding of what, you know, is a good thing or bad thing are based on my class status, right? They're based on my class status. And, and if I'm not aware of them, if I'm not, you know, vigilant about that, I can sometimes multiply that into what everyone else is worrying about. Like I'm worrying about how my six-year-old what what the world is going to be like when she grows up and and part of that is where she will go to college what sort that sort of thing yeah. and i know that there are other six-year-olds in the same city whose parents have to worry about other things and i think for hansberry she i think she's really just one of the ways that you went into this war is that you sort of continue to look at it right so when the the magician is performing his trick and you're, you're watching and you don't know quite what's happening. She's saying, no, no, you must pay attention to it. Look at it. Figure out, is this your first world problems or are these problems that, will, that we should solve because they will help people in other ways? The fourth illusion is that we have an inexhaustible period of time for justice. Just hearing that within itself is pretty apparent to me that that's, that's false or that it's an illusion. But this seems <laughs> to be, be in line with Keene's criticism of white liberals in this letter from a Birmingham jail, right? Do you think, and this is just to put on our empathy caps here, right? Do you think that a large majority of, of white liberals that Hansberry and King criticizes believe that there's actual time? Do you think that they believe that patience is a virtue that will have some kind of utility in the pursuit for justice? Or do you think something else is going on that kind of supports or is behind this illusion? <laughs> so... <laughs> I have so many thoughts about that. I think, <laughs> okay. you know, we can be we can be specific about which which one of these folks we're talking about, right? I okay. think there there are a range of white liberal attitudes. And I and the funny thing is I don't think they're reserved for white liberal attitudes. I have uh, friends of color who are and sometimes well meaning and well intentioned but but uh, but are sort of on the spectrum. So this is what I think about the spectrum. I think yes, for some folks they think that there is time. Time in the sense that now was never the time, right? To to to, to paraphrase King, right? Uh, you know, there's always a, a wait. If you if you wait now uh, for a while, then we'll have better conditions, right? So if you wait for the new the new president, the new senator, if you wait until this happens, there's always the people who want to wait. I think the reasons why they want to wait put them on the spectrum, right? Uh, the, one of the parts of the spectrum is you know, that uh, there are some people who frankly know that we live in unjust conditions, especially uh, folks who are poor and disenfranchised, especially if they're poor, disenfranchised and of color in the United States. And what those people want is not time, right? But they don't want the pains of striving, right? Yeah. This is something that Hansberry is really acutely aware of, that freedom struggles are difficult and that you can't assert, you know, what we want is, is power for the poor or that what we want is different policing practices or what we want is an end to racism in our institutions and then assert that and then not act on it. Or if you act on it, you can't act on it and then not hurt people and not hurt in like sort of a decent sense of harm, but no people's feelings get hurt. 
-hmm. you know, folks wondering if, you know, you call them a racist or folks are in their feelings about this disrupted their day because you had a protest, right? And so for Hansberry, and I think I, I think I agree with this, there's this idea that the time for justice is slow, not because we need to be patient, but because if it's not slow, it, it hurts, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. Right. And so we'd rather not do it. We, we, we're putting it off like we're putting off doing the dishes. Yeah. Right. You do the dishes. Uh, it sucks. But it, you, you got to go through the process. And I think that for a lot of liberal folks, people don't want the pains of justice. I also think there's another end of that spectrum. And that is some folks, especially where we are now. I don't know that this was as, as true in Hansberry time. Think that there really isn't there aren't really current freedom struggles. Hmm. I think that there are people who think that there are people who are mad about some that happened or particular issues, but they're not invested in the idea that some of us um, think that there are real, persistent, current problems that stem from systemic oppression and not just their general everyday what they feel about things. See, this makes me think about the viral video that went around where the older white woman is saying that racism did not come about again until Obama became president. That sort of view, right? Now, who, the, the person who holds it, we, I don't like to psychologize, right? Yes. You know, people have all sorts of reasons why they have that view. But for lots of us, the person who, when, when someone says something like that, it strikes you as so odd, so, you know, especially from our subject position. You know, I'm a black woman who grew up poor and working class, mm -hmm. more often poor than working. And... <laughs> When someone says, you know, that there was no racism until, you know, 2008, it sometimes I feel like we're in another planet. Yeah. Like, you know, she lives in a different world than I do. And it, it might be true in some ways. But I think there's something else going on with that sort of thing. It, it's, and, and I think, you know, I, I think about this when I read Hands Right too. There are a lot of people who, because of their own racism, classism, want to they want to say what you have is enough yeah right it isn't it isn't what i got you shouldn't have what i have and i think the, there's ways that they remind certain folk that they're always stepping out of place and so we think about this woman talking woman talking about there was no racism until obama right um there was racism but nobody she she felt like nobody had to call it out until there was a black man in the white house right mm -hmm. so there's an interesting way that that gets turned back on people who say something right and I, yeah. I I'm always I try not to be shocked because I shouldn't be because it's not it's not an uncommon thing to hear but every time someone says something like that I'm just looking like where do you live and yeah. and, and how are we occupying the same world that we are and then that's a that's a real real problem I, I'm not sure what the solution is for that but that, that's a real problem we could be in the same space and someone could be thinking racism returned with the election of Barack Obama so we discussed four illusions but you think there's another one and this is pretty provocative mm -hmm. right you think that the idea that integration will solve our racial problems is an illusion why Denise James <laughs> See, you asked me that with, with the appropriate amount of ooh. So here's the thing. And, th and this, I started thinking this before, you, you know, you ever have an intuition about something, but until you sort of sit with it, it's just in the background. So I, I think yeah. I probably thought that that integration as an, as an illusion was a thing probably before I even had words to think about this, right? And it recurred for me, and it's been recurring for me for several reasons. Some professional, some personal, right? I am 
a person who is re recently middle class, right? I, yeah. I got a, a, a cushy job that I like in philosophy. I'm a tenured professor at a place that values me, right? I have a partner who is gainfully employed. We are suddenly, you know, the black middle class after not being middle class. Yeah. That has posed lots of problems. I spend a lot of my time, and this was true of my schooling too, I spend a lot of my time as the sole person of color, right? Just me, or one or two other folks, sometimes one or two other black folks, sometimes we get someone who is Latina, but, but mostly it's just me. I spend the majority of my professional time in those sorts of settings, but it also translates to my personal time. My family, where we live, what we do, and they're around me, there are people personally who think that just the appearance, the presence of one black family or so has suddenly integrated their community. So, mm -hmm. so it was a personal thing, but it was also a professional thing. Sometimes when we philosophers like to look at real world problems, we come up with analytically neat uh, solutions, right? And one of the, at least for a while there, one of the very sort of it things to talk about was integration. It was like a recurrence in philosophy. Although black thinkers who are not typically typically thought of as philosophers had been thinking about integration for a long time, including Lorraine Hansberry, uh, whose family integrated a, a white neighborhood in Chicago. Had well, There was a big court case about it. It was a big deal in her, her formative life. Um, so black people have been thinking about integration for a long time. But uh, philosophers, I think, have taken it up recently. You know, I think it's an illusion. Because often... What we're talking about when we're talking about integrating neighborhoods is we're not talking about supporting and building up neighborhoods that have been racially segregated, right? So the black side of town doesn't get integrated and, and doesn't get the sort of resources and support. What we're thinking about is the sprinkle in method of uh, integration. Black folks get sprinkled in with white folks in better spaces, right? Uh, we look at data that says uh, black people in poverty living together, right, increases things like crime rate and attrition when it comes to going to high school. And people say, well, you know, what would be better is if we broke up racial segregation. And what that means for the minority is the minority gets broken up and sprinkled into white communities. Yeah. Well, to me, there are lots of problems with that. One is a problem of value. I think often we assume that everyone should be striving for markers of success, markers of value that are white middle class values. Hmm. And frankly, I am not certain that those are the values that we all should be striving for. Yeah. Right. There's, there's this, this idea that at least in, in some of the literature that the white middle class values of single, not multi-generational families who have you know people who work certain sorts of jobs and whose, whose kids act in certain sorts of ways and have certain sorts of activities and I'm looking around and I think who is being reflected in those types of values and they're not the people that I grew up with who I think had some really good ideas they're also not the people of the generation before the two generations before uh, that, that I grew up uh, the people who raised us who um, in communities that were segregated took great pride in types of cultural values that included community being central to uh, your well-being, right? So part of the thing that you strove for was to do good in your and for your community because you were a part of it. That's not necessarily what lots of people who are touted that integration will solve our racial problems are talking about, right? They're, they're this increased sort of capitalistic self-gain individuality is a big part of that integration illusion. And so I worry about that. I worry about those values. I worry, too, that black people become a social experiment, yeah. right? 
that what happens when you know you integrate the school when you integrate workspaces uh, with one or two black people because that's that's pretty much what we're talking about here right is that the black people will somehow get the social capital they need to be successful and well, I've just talked about the terms of that success and that white people will learn because they are in close association with somebody's black child that to me puts a lot of onus on the black child and I worry I worry because I've been that person, right? The the one person who is allowed into the party. And the problem is the party wasn't meant for my black self to appear. And so the difficulty of that, I think we don't actually want to talk about that this is not an equal share of growing pains when we integrate communities, right? That there are real risk, real harms that can be that can happen. I'm not saying they have to happen, but do happen when we integrate spaces as minorities. And, and I think I get really, really worried when philosophers get a hold of a problem and don't really think about the real world impact, although it's a real world problem. And so we we, we make because we, we like to take the best of the social sciences and, and mostly pragmatists do this, right? This is these are my folks, right? Analytic philosophers who sometimes dabble in pragmatism do it too, but they take the findings of the social scientists, right? They take, you know, what they think of as the best cog side about how people develop and moral development or whatever, and then they lump them all together and they say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to do this thing to help the folk. The problem is the folk are actual folk. And what seems like a line or two to say about, you know, emotional distress or uh, problems with identity formation, all those sorts of things seem real neat on paper. But I don't know that we always understand that we might be participating in championing, you know, ideas that could be seriously problematic. I'm not saying we don't think about these things. I'm not even saying we don't try to enact new racially desegregated communities, right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying not enough folks are saying, hmm, what is the cost of this? Yeah. I'm reminded of, I don't know if you read this article recently, I think in the last couple of weeks, it was a profile, I think it's from the Washington Post of a black middle-class family who has decided to stay in their core community, right? For mm-hmm. reasons of whether that's uh, support. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the the question of how do you wage war against these illusions? It seems like they are opting to stay in the black community as opposed to integrating. Mm-hmm. But have you thought about other ways to wage war against this? So one of the one of the ways, right? And I think this is a a really important way is that you have to really examine the source. And I think that's what I was saying before. And this is a Hansberry sort of concept that one of the ways that you wage the war, no matter where you, you know, end up living, right, uh, is for people like me, the writer, right, someone like me, you, you know, you do the you do the work, right, by actually attending to what might be problematic. It is unpopular for me to say that I don't think most of at least our theater, theoretical ideas about integration are helpful or working for um, solutions to racial problems. Right? I, don't, I just don't think they work. But part of what my sort of battle is, is to, to wage that war, to examine the source. Right? This is harder to do, and this is also really important is that, you know, for Hansberry, one of the ways you wage war is that you refrain from cultural apology, right? You stop saying, well, black people or poor people only do that because this. And, you know, it's a way of sort of explaining away, you know, differences, but also it's a way of making neat and nice for the majority um, things that perhaps aren't neat and nice. 
And so that's an interesting practice. And I think when I think about, I read that article really closely that you mentioned um, about the family choosing to stay in their school district, right? Choosing to send their kids to a school that, that was, you know, really difficult for them. And I, and I think about that in that way, right? When you are upwardly mobile, it is really tempting, right? Not to associate yourself with anything that has to do with your former poverty or distress, yeah. right? Um, we get out of our neighborhoods. We send our kids to better school. In fact, that is one of everybody's, at least around, around the black families, I know that's one of our refrains, right? You want your kids to live better than you did, yeah. right? So you, you try to, to get them other things. And that family, right, made a choice, I think, that is in many ways commendable. In many ways, I think people question, I, I had a great, a conversation with a friend who lives in that same area about that choice and she said I don't know if I want my children to wage my, my battles hmm. right do, do I want to risk what I could give them in their mobility for what I think is ideologically or sort of a justice claim and, and that's real talk like that's something yeah. really to think about it's something I think about all the time we agonize I live in Dayton Ohio where I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit but the city is racially segregated there is not a a big black middle class and I'm being kind by saying there isn't a big one and I have to daily almost determine what sort of activities that my child will participate in because we're not thinking of a highly integrated place places are integrated because she shows up right yeah. um, or a place where there is a robust community of a sort of a robust black community I think there there are spots here and there are places here and so this is a part of, I think, lots of our sort of everyday life. Like, what struggle does the struggle have, right? Am, am I going to make struggles for the kid? Am I going to make struggles for me? Is this about institutional things? What is about, you know, personal experience? I think, and you asked about another way to wage this war. And, and, and I think the the thing that I, that I, I am really committed to is that um, Hansberry says, you know, we have to reclaim the past so we can look to our future. And part of, you know, my projects recently have really been being attentive to sources, to information, to philosophically rich ideas that don't come from philosophers, right, or professionally trained philosophers. And that's really difficult because the question is, you know, do do I then write in a way that's authentic? Do I, do I translate them into a language that, because it's not their professional language, that I've distorted the view? And those are, are all really sort of hard things. When it comes to on-the-ground stuff, when it comes to integration, I think the same thing happens when there are a few of us who say some of the, the efforts we put into trying to figure out how to integrate black folks into say white communities should be efforts we put into strengthening historically black communities sounds really segregationist yeah right there are people who tell me when i say things like that that i have somehow missed the point and i and i, and I say you know i worry that they don't see the value in those spaces right that they don't see the value in transfer resources to spaces where perhaps different cultural values due to race and, and culture i think prevail So you, you're currently working on a modern graph about urban divestment and the possibility of justice in the U.S. cities, right? Which sounds totally different from what we've been discussing so far, right? <laughs> but but it seems that you're coming back full circle. When we first met, the first thing I told you is that, hey, I took a look at your dissertation. You were so embarrassed. But your, your <laughs> dissertation was on creative public sphere and democracy, right? So it's not so far-fetched from what you're doing now. What pulls you in this unique direction? 
And I also wonder, do you see this work connected to your work in black feminism? Yeah, it all goes together. But it, you know, <laughs> it goes together the way things go together. I think sometimes, especially philosophers, we like to make up a great story about how everything came together. And we can tell, we, we, you know, we're good at argumentation. So we put our premises and conclusions together about how we got here. In my case, I've been working on that book project for a long time. And in fact, I probably write more for that project because I have another project that's concurrent is a, on black feminism and pragmatism. Um, I probably write more for the divestment project than I do any other thing I do. And it's, you know, on multiple spaces. It's in my cloud. It's on two different computers. And it's been slow going. And the reason why I came back to it, right, the reason why I came back to this is a particular problem is because I moved to Dayton. Yeah. And when I moved to Dayton, it was jarring. It, it is, it's, a, it's one of those middle-class cities. It's like so many middle-class cities that get more press. It was the third largest maker of motor vehicles in the U.S. until the late 80s, early 90s. With the transfer overseas into other locations of manufacturing, the city lost, um, depending on who you ask, but I think the census tells the truth, um, something like uh, half of its population in the span of 20 years. And so this is a this is a city that I moved to, and was I, I'm say I'm gonna I'm gonna say frankly surprised. I came from Atlanta, where there's certainly you know poverty and neglect in lots of neighborhoods, but to come to Dayton and to see, uh, especially on certain sides of town where the poor are, and there are two sides of town for the poor, right? There's the white side of town for the poor and the black side of town for the poor. So it's interesting here, but to come to this city. Oh, I think I drove you through the city. Yeah, yes. to come to this city and see see just how what's empty. Everything's empty. What's mm -hmm. you know falling to decay and how long? And I'm always interested in practical problems, right? The, the questions that I ask of philosophy is how can we solve particular problems? What, what sort of ideas? Because I have the time to sit down and think through some things. Um, and so, what, what sort of ideas would help us here? And so I, I started to think about divestment because of this, and because there were all of these newspaper articles talking about Dayton as a dying city, the, the city that's dying, the city that's dying, and how it was going to be revived. My university is, you know, one of the the major employers and sort of main revivers of the city, and I started to think of, you know, what are the ethical dimensions of this? Because the city is dying, but half the people stayed, right? And the people who stayed, a large majority of those people, especially if they are poor, could not be mobile. They couldn't go to the bigger cities of Cincinnati and Columbus. Yeah. There are reason they are stuck here, right? Generational poverty is a thing. And those people are living on streets where every other house is burned out, empty, vacant, been that way for a long time, right? And what does it mean that the city has started to talk about revitalizing the city and the people that they want to attract to the city are people who will work at the university? The university itself increased in landmass, doubled since I've been here. And that had been, you know, I think it was starting in 1851 or something. Like, so in the 200 odd years previous, it had not doubled in landmass. But since I've been here, it has. And, you know, I am always worried about the shiny new plan because the shiny new plan doesn't take as stakeholders those people who have been marginalized and dispossessed. Right. And so to me, it's of a piece with all of the other work I do. And it's also, I think, in, in the, the book I talk about black feminism a lot because there is this element in thinkers that I'm interested in, black feminists in particular, Hansberry, one of them, that isn't like what I, what I have. Um, they, they're real hopeful. And hopeful that, that with what pregnancy will call something like creative intelligence, we can think of solutions to our contemporary problems 
that does not further disenfranchise and marginalize folks. And so part of that book and part of the reason why it's, it's, it's taken me longer to really get my head around is, you know, I want to say something like, we can't think the way to rebuild the city is to rebuild the city as university town or as, even though this may be the way it goes, or there's a big Air Force base here or just about the base, because we would lose so much. But, but I can't get my head around how to talk about that and really honor the fact that I'm actually not for, sort of, I don't want to poo-poo those plans. I think it's a good idea. Right, that the that the Air Force and, and well, I don't know about the Air Force, but that the Air Force and the university and the hospitals here, I, I think it's good that they invest in the city, but I want them to invest in the people who are in the city. And that is really, and, and I'm not sure what the philosopher has to say about that. Like, I got all sorts of things to say about what does it mean to belong, what is an enfranchisement city, you know, what's a good sort of just regional arrangement, why what we currently have is it. I got some great ideas about that but you know I, I really have been sitting and trying to figure out what the, the upshot is because I'm actually not as hopeful as some of the, the thinkers that I think that I use in my work I'm just not this is not my general disposition Denise you're not only a philosopher right mother and wife all this stuff but you're also a visual artist I've seen your work on Facebook what kinds of pieces <laughs> are you currently working on and in the spirit of Hansbury what statement does your art say uh so I am primarily a painter, although I'm really interested in what I call handicrafts, right? So anything that involves yarn and needle, so crochet, knitting, but I also bead. Yeah, there's too many hobbies. Um, <laughs> it's true. But currently, I'm doing lots of little small paintings to figure out what I want the big ones to be. I started, I was. I, I took some painting classes in college, but I was always an artist before that. I stopped painting in graduate school because it was too expensive and I didn't have enough space. Honesty, right? Like I lived in a small apartment. Paint was too expensive. I had to figure out how I was going to eat. So <laughs> it's true. I took it up again a few years ago because I got sick. And when I got sick, I couldn't sleep. And when I and I was trying to figure out what I could do because I had this, this brain that had lots of ideas, but I didn't want to write. Uh, I couldn't write. It wasn't this sort of thing. So I picked the art back up. And initially, all I ever painted were things that no one ever else saw. I mean, Craig, that's my partner in my house, he sees me. They were really personal to me, and so it was, it was therapeutic. And then I started to paint things that prominently featured sort of sort of abstract black women portraits of various sort of smirky faces. I feel like I was in a smirky face mood. And I, I mostly started to do it because my body was rebelling against my mind, and I was trying to sort of visualize... I, w I was not seeing myself in these things, but what it was like to sort of be a, a whole person whose body and mind uh, were working well together. It was real philosophical, right? You know, I didn't know I believed in mind-body dualism until my mind and my body didn't agree. Mm -hmm. um, and then I realized I wished I could just live through my mind and not... <laughs> Yeah. And not my body. So so those early paintings were all sort of my attempts to work through that. Currently, the little paintings, right, the, the things um, that I'm working on are, I think they are, they're my attempt to really think through issues of, of beauty, right? I, I dabble in aesthetics, just dabble philosophically, but I also am really keenly aware of how lots of things that I value as as beautiful are not seen as beautiful by lots of folks, right? But also, even if they are seen as beautiful, they're co-opted into sort of 
how to make yourself look cute. And that's not quite what I'm thinking about when I think about beauty. And so I've been painting these pages trying to think through think through beauty. Now, what they will become, who knows, right? I'm I'm uh I'm too it's not that I'm too busy to paint, because that's not true. I paint in the wee hours of the morning a lot. I'm too busy to, to finish. Hmm. I have a I have lots of balls in the air. Like I, the things I do professionally, I have lots of writing to do. And so right now there's there's a lot of starts and not a lot of finishes. And so and like Hansberry, I feel like that was something that was true about her life. She wrote lots of things, lots of plays. There's novels, right? There's screenplays. But her life ended really early. And it ended before she finished a whole lot of the things she wanted to finish. And so I'm really sympathetic to that. Uh, hopefully I will have some longevity. But, you, you know, those things you never know. So I have lots of unfinished things thinking about beauty, in particular, um, thinking about beauty that isn't about sort of presenting oneself as pretty, but also thinking about what does it mean to think about beauty. Lastly, name one main thing that you take from Hansberry and using your work as a philosopher, a visual artist, and a woman. There, there are all of these descriptions of what the brain Hansberry was like. And some of them, especially when it was it came time to stage her plays, was that she was a bit of a bit of a prima donna, right, a diva. That that she had real ideas about the way she wanted her work to be presented. And there were others that said, you know, that she was a sweetheart and sometimes a depressive, right? So very kind. That she was often really sort of trying to figure out her emotions about things, and sometimes, you know, went away to be by herself because of it. But, uh, but in all of those interpretations of her and reading her diary entries about herself, one of the things that I really take away is, is that she was willing to struggle through the puzzles, right? Like the, there is a distrust of simplicity in Hansberry that I really want and really try to practice in my various roles for all of my successes and failures, right? That there's this idea that, um, and Hansberry that what is complex, right? What is hard for us to think about, look at, think through is exactly the thing we should be thinking about, looking at, thinking through. And in the end, we may not come to full resolution, right? In the end, we may not solve the problem in the end for her. The plays may not always come together, but you still do it. And to me, that's sustaining and fulfilling because I think Often because of demands, both in personal life and professional life, I want, you know, things to be perfect. I want them to, to fit the box to check. I want to be over and done. I want to, you know, send um, the chapter to the editor. Somebody will listen to this in the future and be like, mm-hmm, send me your chapter, right? I want to send the chapters to the editor on time. I want, you know, to do all these perfect things. And Hansberry says, okay, you know, you can attempt to do those things. But as long as you realize that, that there is complexity there, and that complexity will take time and effort, and it won't always feel good. Denise, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> me and my rambling. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> me. It was you. fun. Thank you. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.